Happy Father's Day. Fathers. I trust I'm not the first person to say that to you. And we have one father that some of you don't know about. Ben's a father. Uh, Michael is carrying a little one. And... uh, congratulate you, Ben, this morning, and probably there may be one or two. Isn't there somebody else also that we found out about? Who? The Churchills. Congratulations. Are they here? Congratulations, Deline. That's wonderful. We will pray for your little ones, that God will give you strength, especially in the first trimester. And, uh, well, this morning I want to speak to you about fatherhood. Um, It's a theme that is, whenever I think about fatherhood in Scripture, I always think about the last verse in the Old Testament. At the end of Malachi, it says, verses 5 and 6, the last two verses, it says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. What a curious way that the Old Testament would end. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And so here we have a a gospel statement that part of the gospel is that God restores the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. And if we look at America today, I have, uh, as I get older, increasingly um, I spend time talking to pastors. And it's been my observation, especially since moving to Bloomington, but even up in Wisconsin, it's been my observation that Uh, what I call father hunger is the most pressing pastoral need that there is in the church today. And it's not accidental that the Old Testament ends on this note and that central to the going out of the gospel is a wonderful healing and turning of the hearts of children to their dad and, and of the father to their children. This last week, I was talking to my mother about my concern for a relative of ours that we both love. And I said to her that the most sobering thing about this relative of ours is that she refuses to pray to God as Father. Now, in her mind, that's a relatively small thing. She, she, she believes that she can name God as she wants. But when you go to the book of Romans and it tells you that We know that the Spirit dwells within us because the Spirit within us cries out. And it doesn't just say Father, but it says Abba Father, Daddy Father. And then you think of what is going on in the heart of someone who refuses to name God Father. I have no question that such people are not true believers. You can't have such an explicit statement that this is how we know That the Spirit dwells within us because the Spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. And then, of course, there's Jesus telling us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. And all that language of fatherhood that we find in Scripture. And I realize, at the beginning I will say this, and I think I'll return to it at the end. I realize um, that there are many who have had fathers 
who have taught them that fatherhood can't be trusted and that fatherhood does violence to them. Many who say fatherhood simply fails them. It's, it's immaterial. It, it just has nothing to do with their lives. But there are many who have suffered positive violence from their fathers. And so many in our culture have decided that they will name God and that they will name him mother or that they will simply use the word God over and over again. They'll never say God, he has called us. They'll say God, God has called us. Um, and there are two ways of responding to the failure of our fathers. And one way is to deny that God has revealed himself as a father. And the other way is to learn what true fatherhood is from God. And that's what we have to do. We have to go back and love God, the father from whom, in Ephesians 3 it says, from whom all fatherhood gets its name, all patria gets its name. And then we begin to be able not just to judge our fathers, but to forgive them and then to love them. Remember, love covers a multitude of sins. Well, I want you to turn this morning, if you would, to Acts chapter 10, because there are a number of exemplary fathers in Scripture, but I'm particularly fond of this model father named Cornelius that we read about. His story takes up more than the first eight verses, but I would like us to read the first eight verses. And the title of this sermon is, O Lord, Give Us Devout, God-Fearing Men. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people, and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, here is Cornelius, a man of God, who led his family in obedience and submission to his heavenly father. What are we told about Cornelius? What concrete things can we see in his life that we are able to copy in our homes and lives as we seek to be the fathers that God has called us to be? And by the way, those of you who are single, um, most of you will end up being fathers. So don't think this doesn't apply to you because you don't yet have children. Uh, the other thing to remember is Mother Teresa was a mother, never married, never had children, and had innumerable children. And so the language of fatherhood and motherhood is not limited to those who are married and to those who have children, but it encompasses the church. You remember that we used to refer to Rita Cuffey as a mother in Israel. 
And really today, that's an Old Testament term, Deborah was a mother in Israel, really today a mother of the church would be a good way of translating that. And Rita was a widow. And none of her kids lived in town. And yet she was a mother to many, many of us. She was my mother. Um, and my mother won't be jealous over me saying that. All right, first of all, Cornelius was a centurion. Now, we get the word centurion from the same root that we get the word century from. It means a hundred. And so Cornelius was an officer over a hundred. He was a Roman officer over a hundred in the Roman army. The Roman army was the occupying army. And so it was their duty to prevent riots and to ensure that Rome would not lose control of the colony. There's a little note made in the text. If you look at the text, um, actually you'll have to have Bibles today because I told them I was going to be preaching on Galatians and I changed. But if you look at Acts chapter 10 um, and you look at verse um, 1, you'll see that it ends by saying uh, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. Now, cohort means group. You know, a battalion, a, a squad, whatever. It's the Italian cohort. So what this means is that Cornelius was the head of a group of soldiers that were entirely Italian and therefore entirely Roman. Now, what would be the significance of that? Well, likely it was that these men had the job of protecting the Roman governor that lived there in Caesarea. Caesarea was named for Caesar Augustus, Caesarea. And uh, they, because they were all native Romans, if you will, Roman citizens, they could be particularly depended upon to stand with the Roman ruler. Does this make sense? So what they were was they were probably the elite civil ser uh, secret service, or they were like the Swiss guards in the Vatican. They were the ones that when push came to shove, if everybody else fell, they would stand with the Roman governor. All right? Now, Centuri, uh, excuse me, uh, here we have this group. It's headed by an officer named Cornelius. Uh, he's a centurion. He's over a hundred. They're in uh, Caesarea, and they are an occupying force. I have told you before that I like reading both uh, Navy and Army novels surrounding the Napoleonic Wars. And one of the themes in the uh, army novels is the depredations that would regularly take place under an occupying force. Thievery, murder, extortion, and much worse. And one frequent theme in these books is that a good officer would keep his men from doing any of those things. And so the men would respect him. Sometimes they'd wish that they could, but they would respect such an officer. Well, what kind of an officer was Cornelius? Well, he was devout. He was God-fearing. He gave alms. And it also says what? Well, if you look down at verse 7, it says, When the angel was speaking to him, it left. He summoned two of his servants, and then what? It says, And a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. Now, it doesn't surprise you, does it, that Cornelius had a devout soldier, an enlisted man who probably was his right-hand man that he could depend upon to do what was right. 
In fact, it wouldn't surprise you if you went into that group of hundred and you found that it was a self-selective group in that probably some of the men there were there because of what kind of an officer Cornelius was. And some of them were probably God-fearers because they were under an officer who was a God-fearer. Now, I'm going to return to this theme, but God does deal in groups. Some of you are military men, and you can probably tell me of the leavening effect that a good officer who's godly has on a group. Um, well, anyhow, it shouldn't surprise us that this, this devout centurion, this devout officer, had a trusted enlisted man who was also devout. Now, today in America, what would be a similar career? Well, the most natural thing is the occupying forces in Iraq. You know, people in the Army, people in the Navy, people in the Air Force. Um, and, and what I want you to think about as we, as we keep studying Cornelius is, uh, think about your occupation. And think about the excuses you make for your behavior because of your occupation. Well, you know, you can't be a godly union man. You know, you can't be a godly soldier. Uh, think of what it would have been like to be away, uh, on, on a whaler. Away for sometimes years at a time from your family in, in a boat of men. You know? What about a godly uh, soccer player? What about a godly football player? What about a godly investment broker? What about a godly mathematics professor? Who works... At Indiana University. How about a godly graduate student who has a real pill for, for his major professor and, and still wants to get the dissertation approved? You know, what little things do you have to do to make sure that you're successful? How about, how about a godly professor that's seeking tenure? How about a godly sociology professor? Now, that is impossible. It's just a joke. Although I do think it would be easier to be in mathematics and sociology as a confessing Christian. How about a godly police officer? You know, I think if we were to think through all the occupations there are that are obviously legitimate. There are some that we would say are illegitimate to have as a Christian, and you simply can't do them, right? Now, we would disagree over what those occupations are, right? But one of them probably is being a pimp or a prostitute. You can't have that. Or, for instance, a seller of illegal drugs, a pusher, right? Or I think we're agreed on that. Now, if you were to think about it, would you think that a Roman centurion could be a Christian, could be godly, could be a God-fearer? If you were counseling your son, would you tell him to go into or not to go into the army today? Think of the army today. Think of the living situation between men and women in the same barracks, often lacking any ability to be modest with each other. Would you believe that a Christian could be godly in such a context. Well, I think that no matter what the challenges are in the American military today, they're nothing like the challenges that there would have been in the Roman army. 
And here we have this centurion, Cornelius, who the Bible commends. And it says that he was godly. It says that he was a God-fearer. It says that he was devout. It says, verse 2, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Now, what does it mean to be a devout man? Verse 2. Do you know any devout men? And how would you tell that they're devout? Now, the word devout comes from a compression of two words, one meaning well and the other meaning worshiping. So it's kind of somebody who's worshiping well. And if you will, I'd like you to think of this devout as being sort of a parallel to this other word, which was that he was faithful in prayer. So he was he worshipped well and he prayed well. Now, if you think about it that way, what 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 is the tension between those two words? Well, the tension is what? The tension is public and private. So this was not a man who said that he worships best in the woods, was it? Up in Wisconsin, people love to hunt. And people thought hunt, hunting was a religion. And I hate to disappoint some of you, but it's not. <laughs> and so typically, um, some of these guys, would they knew I was a preacher. They'd say to me, you know, I get my religion in the woods. Out in the woods, that's where I know God. You know, and that was their explanation without being explicit as to why they didn't come to church. Well, Cornelius wasn't like that. Cornelius didn't have a personal religion that didn't involve the family, the household of God, did he? Cornelius was worshiping well with the people of God, and he was also privately faithful in worship. He prayed. All right. So he was a devout man. Now, if you were to ask yourself uh, how we would act if we were devout, um, you would understand that such a person would be, and I'm, I realize that, that you think I'm, I'm, I'm harping on this as a merchant, but I'm not. He would be faithful in worship. Uh, yesterday, I was talking to my son and asking him when he was going to be returning from um, from Denver. And he said, well, we leave tomorrow morning. And immediately, what do you think I said? I said to Joseph, well, Joseph, you're married and you have <laughs> you have your own wife and your own home. And, and, and I realize that I'm no longer your father. And so I'll just shut my mouth right now. And I know I'm no longer his, the head of his household. That's, that's very clear to me. But what do you think I said to him? What do you think I said? Come on, you know me. Huh? I said to him, so you're not going to go to church tomorrow, right? And he said, right. And I said, what? Joseph, how many times do I have to tell you? We're to be devout. We're to be faithful. We're to go to worship. We, how could you be my son and not be going to worship tomorrow? I want you to stop and I want you to get Jeff Childress to stop. And I want you to go into a church on the way home and have worship. Is that what I said? No. I said, Joseph, 
I love you, and we are failures, but God is merciful. You know, there are lots of reasons not to go to church. I know, I'm like you. (laughs) Cornelius, though, was devout. And that means that he worshipped well. He was faithful in worship. It also says other things about him. And let's go to the next one. It says um, that he was a God-fearing man in verse 2. Now, what does God-fearing mean? It means that Cornelius lived every moment of every day in the awareness that God was watching and that one day he would stand before God's great judgment seat and give an account for himself. Now, every time I use this word, God-fearing, every time I read it in the book of Acts to describe the godly, I hear some of you saying, but Christians aren't supposed to fear God. You know, that's law. That's Old Testament. In the New Testament, we're given a God who is a God only of love, or a God mostly of love, or a God where love finally wins out. And brothers and sisters, please be biblical. Don't be Presbyterian. Don't be Reformed. Don't be Baptist. Be biblical. And if the book of Acts describes people positively by saying they were God-fearers, you should do the same. It's not an old covenant thing and we're done with that. It is today a way of commending a man to say he's a God-fearer. And it says that Cornelia is a God-fearer. Now, if you think that the reason it says that he's a God-fearer is because he was a proselyte and not he was a Gentile and not fully a Jew. He hadn't gone through circumcision. And this is the way they referred to them at the time. Then I ask you to turn over to Acts chapter 9. And there you will see that it says this about the church. So now we're no longer dealing with Old Covenant. We're no longer dealing with Old Testament. We're no longer dealing with people pre-Christ. We're now dealing with people who are saved and who are members of churches, who are Christians who confess Jesus Christ. And it says in Acts 9, verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, and what? Going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Now listen, anyone who's ever had a good father completely understands that. Right? Completely. There is no good father who isn't a comfort to his children and there is no good father who isn't scary to his children. (laughs) Now some of us have trouble scaring them. And some of us have trouble comforting them. But a good father comforts and scares. And that's why I keep hammering a little quote into you. In the godly, fear and love what? Come on. Embrace. In the godly, fear and love embrace. They're not opposed to each other. A father should be scary and comfortable. All right, And so what we see here is that the description of the New Testament church, of the godly in it, was that they continued on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit has you comfortable, and I don't mean that in a lazy boy way, all right? when the Holy Spirit has you comfortable, you do fear God. 
But you fear God in a comfortable way. Your conscience is clean by the blood of Christ and you grieve over your sins. These are not in opposition to each other. So much of the error in American Christianity is trying to lead you into comfort in an unbiblical way. And so many, many churches will tell you that you don't fear God anyway. That's Old Testament. God's a judge in the Old Testament and He's a lover in the New Testament. But it's just not true. That if somebody tells you you should be having devotions and reading your Bible and praying faithfully, that obviously they've gotten caught in the law of the Old Testament. Devotions is a joy. And you should just just wake up in the morning thinking, yippee, I get to have devotions this morning. And if you don't feel that way, don't do it because it will be a work of law and grace. I mean, of law and whatever, not grace. Oh, I'm not grace, and so you shouldn't do it. Because you should never do anything that you don't have naturally, yippee-like, the right motivation to do. Right? Because the Holy Spirit only works through impulses that are graceful. Right? Right? And really, the best way to raise children is through affirmation. Now, don't get me wrong. I affirm my children all the time. If you watch me with my children, you'll see that I love them, that I think they're the world's best children. And if you want to argue with me about that, just try. Okay? So it's not that I don't believe in affirmation, but we all know that it's a combination of comfort and fear that works in a dad. And it's the same with God. God does not lose His majesty and His authority and His sovereignty. He does not become unjust in the New Testament because love whoops up on His justice. If you want to know how love and justice meet in God, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Where the justice of God and the love of God met in the death of God's Son. And if you solve the problems of your relationship with God with your motivation being one of comfort, And if you solve the problems in your relationships with your children with your motivation being one of comfort, you will do violence to your relationship to God and you will do violence with your relationship to your children. Cornelius was a God-fearer. And, interestingly enough, what does it say? It says, if you look at verse 2, a devout man and one who feared God. And what comes next? What does it say? With all his what? Household. With all his household. Now, what point would we make here on Father's Day from that? What is the significance of it saying that Cornelius feared God? And then adding a little parenthetical note with his household. You see that in verse 2? With all his household. Now, this is where I could talk to you about infant baptism. And I could tell you this is why those of us that baptize babies baptize them. But that's not what I want to do. And I don't want those of you that are Baptists to not listen to what I have to say because you think I'm trying to sneak an argument about infant baptism in here. Some of you don't know this, but we have 
an unequal number of pedo-baptists and believers-only Baptists in this church. Uh, but I happen to be one of the minority. I actually believe in baptizing babies. Sorry, but that's what I believe in. And that's not what I'm arguing for here. What I want you to understand from this text is that it is normal in Scripture for those who belong to God to lead their family to belong to God also. This is the norm. This is the promise of Scripture. This is something that you should claim in prayer and that you should give yourself to. It should be your expectation that as with Cornelius, all his family, his whole family, also feared God, so with the believer today, his whole family will fear God. Now, you can say to me, well, yeah, but God's sovereign. And it's all God's choice. And God sometimes does not do works of grace in the children of believers. And after all, look, God Himself says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. And so there's an example. God says, while they were yet in the womb, that He chose one and cast the other off. And so we really ought not to be presumptuous about how God's going to work today. What God's really interested in is people that have a personal relationship with Him. Alright, now you hear how seductive that is. Of course it's true. If we think that we can go to heaven because our grandfather's a Christian or our grandmother prayed for us or our mother took us to Sunday school, it's absolutely hopeless. The Bible makes it very clear that a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, must repent. You must repent. The Bible makes it very clear, you must believe. But then the question is, when you, as a father of a household, believe, should there be an expectation that your household believes? Or is this just a weird thing that just sort of shows up in Scripture and you know, it's very, very good that Cornelius had this gift, but none of us should expect that we would have it, you see? Because after all, Christianity is all about our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. It is all about our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What I'm asking is, if I get up and walk out of this church, should we expect that my family walks out with me? If I walk into this church, should we expect that my family walks in with me? If I come to the, to the foot of the cross, and if I bow before the cross, and if I worship Jesus Christ, should we expect that my family comes to the foot of the cross and bows and worships God with me? And I think the only people who could possibly answer no to that question are people who have been so saturated with the individualism of American political philosophy that they've lost the ability to see the corporate dealings of God in Scripture. After all, brothers and sisters, start with this one. That in the Garden of Eden, there was a man named Adam. <laughs> and that when Adam sinned, Eve fell. Even though Eve, Eve had sinned first. It wasn't until Adam sinned. Now, how do I know that? Because you look at the language of Genesis and what you see is it's singular. You, why did you, God says to Adam. And then if you look at Romans and Corinthians, it says, as in one man. Now, that can't be more specific. 
It doesn't say one man and one woman. It doesn't say two people. It says, as in one man we all died, so in Jesus Christ we're all made alive. In other words, Scripture makes it very clear that you and I are corporately in Adam and that because of Adam's sin, all of us died and all of us are under judgment and all of us inherit original sin. So here's the question. If God didn't work in groups, how come that nasty is so absolutely universal? It's what uh, Pascal says in his Pensee. He says, this is the most wacko thing. I mean, he doesn't use his words. But he says, this is the most awful wacko thing that there is in all of, of, of the world. How I could be judged and condemned on the basis of a man I never even knew. And he says, and yet, without this one truth, we do not begin to understand ourselves. <laughs> Why? Because how can you understand yourself until you understand original sin and the fall? How do you understand yourself? You know, in the morning, I need to wake up and remember original sin because otherwise it's a very depressing day. But once I remember that in Adam I died and I became corrupted, and it's through the work of the Holy Spirit that that changes, then I'm okay again because I know I'm completely dependent on Jesus Christ for my righteousness and the work of the Spirit to change me. <laughs> Which is what we all want, right? And so we come back here and we see what? It says this. It says, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household. Now, some of you are still not convinced. You don't want me to use this language of household. You think I'm trying to sneak something in. And so I'm going to hit you on it again. In the book of John, it says that Jesus came to Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed. Is that what it says? No one would ever know what it says there because we all are focusing on this wonderful miracle, right? Well, what's really the wonderful miracle? It's not, that, it's not that he was healed. The wonderful miracle is that it says that he believed. And then it says, and his whole household. Never knew that, did you? It says he believed and his whole household. And if you go into Acts 11, it says to us about this same incident of Cornelius. As God, through an angel, was speaking to Cornelius, who else was God speaking to? He was also speaking to Peter up on the roof, remember? Remember, Cornelius is a Gentile. He's going. He's dirty. Peter has to be convinced that it would be God's will for him to go into the home and to eat what they have. That's the whole symbolism of that food coming down out of the sky. Here he's told, don't call anything dirty that I've made clean. 
So Peter has to have an attitude adjustment in order to be willing to go into Cornelius' home. And here's the interesting thing. If you read the account of Peter being made willing to go into Cornelius' home, of Cornelius being made ready to have Peter come in and give him the rest of the truth that he didn't know, what happens later is that then Peter goes back to Jerusalem to describe this radical thing where God is no longer keeping track of Jews and Gentiles, but rather has invited everybody to come to the table. And this is a, this is a real wrenching thing for, for the people of God, the chosen people, because now the Gentiles are invited in. And in his report back to the church in Jerusalem, it says that when Peter went to Jerusalem in Acts 11, he then says this, He talks about how God had told him what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy, verse 9. He says, And behold, at that moment, verse 11, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Okay, so Cornelius sends his servants to Peter. God has adjusted Peter's attitude. And Peter's now in Jerusalem saying, hey, this is what happened. And he says, the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. And then it says this, verse 13 of chapter 11, and he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. It's not what it says. It says, you will be saved, you and all your household. Now this is God speaking. So you can still say, well, yeah, but again, it's an anomaly. You know, it's just describing an unusual occurrence where the whole household believes, right? I say, how long are you going to go on like that? Okay, let's go on. Let's go on to Acts 16. You think it's just men. It's not. When the household is, is headed by what? A woman. And her name is who? Lydia. Paul goes out in Philippi. He goes out to the river. He finds the devout, God-fearing people there praying by the river. And it says, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, Acts 16.14, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying... In other words, again, a woman's the head of the home... Guess what? The people follow her in faith. And do you understand this? All right, you're not convinced yet. Well, then we go later in Acts 16. And you have Paul and Silas in jail in Philippi. You remember the whole jail crumbles, right? And the the Philippian jailer thinks that he, he has to commit suicide because he's failed at his job. And it says that he said to them, what must I do to believe to be saved? And that Paul says to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. You and what? You and your household. It's the promise. Again, what are you going to say? Paul had some you know, ability to see into the future and to know that there would be this unique work of God where he and his household would believe. Is that what you think? No. And then it says... And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Household, all right? Acts 18.8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. 1 Timothy 3, 
No, 1 Corinthians 16.15. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. Just incidental. The household, first fruits of Achaia. And then we go to 1 Timothy and it says, he who... He, speaking of elders, their qualifications must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Another one you might not be aware of in 11.7 of Hebrews. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his what? His household. Now, what's the application of this to us? The application of this is that when your children go to bed at night and you go in to put your hands on their head and you pray for them, you claim God's covenant promises for your household. You don't go in there cringing, thinking of Jacob and Esau. You think of all the promises of God that you and your household will believe. That you and your household will be saved. And if you have a child who continues to this day to be a rebel against God, you continue to pray God's covenant promises over that child. You're the importunate widow and you go back and you beat the door and you tell the judge, give me what I want. This is what it means to be biblical. We don't cower before God and say, well, it's a mystery how God chooses some and doesn't choose others. And so I only pray specific prayers to individuals and who knows which of my children aren't called. You say to God, God, I am not willing to see my child, my son, my daughter are cast off. You have said that you will be a God to us and to our children. And this child appears to have no fruit. And I, I plead with you to do the work of grace in this child's heart. Giving them faith. What else does it mean? You don't just pray. It means you go to your children and you say, You are to follow my God. <laughs> How could you not do that? Oh, how could you not do that? How could you love a child of yours and not call that child to serve your God? And yet I see, I've seen this so many times in my life as a pastor where fathers don't have the confidence to go to their sons and their daughters and say, this God is my God and therefore it is your God. He is your Father. I am not your father. He is your father. Do you understand that? How could you be a father and not do that? I have said to some of you before, the moment I knew my father's love best was the time when I was living, slopping pigs in my life and he kicked me out of the home and he said, Tim, you are not following God. You may not live in my home. 
You think I yelled? You think I cried? You think, well, that isn't fair. I knew my father was a man of God at that moment. And I went to my slopping pigs knowing that it was what should happen. And there was no question that my father loved me more at that moment than he ever loved me in my life. Do you understand that? Because my father would not tolerate somebody in his home not serving the living God who was his father. Do you understand that? How could we be otherwise? Cornelius had a household that feared God with him. This is not accidental. This is how God works. In a home of godliness, these are the pressures we bring to bear. And I don't mean to say that all of your children are going to be saved if you're godly. But what I mean to say is when they reach the age where they're adults and they're still living in your home and they are flaunting your Father in heaven, they must not live in your home. Why? Because God is the Father of that home. I mean, does this make sense to you? I'm not saying go around and kick them out every time they, they, they are sinners. Christians are sinners. But I am saying that there should be an expectation from the time you hear you have a little one in the womb until the time you go into the grave that if your children do not love your father, they are not your children. And you think I'm being too hard, and I'm not. God is the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And any child of mine who rejects my Father rejects me. Do you understand that? And if you don't understand it, then what you have to do is go back and reclaim your faith in God the Father. So that you know that there is nothing in this life that comes close to being as important as our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that relationship always is catching. It's contagious. And if it isn't contagious, we must make it contagious. And when my father said to me, you leave my home, you're not serving my God, I knew he loved God more than he loved me. And now he loved me so much that he was unwilling to have me as a friend if he couldn't have me as a brother in Christ. Doesn't that make sense? Come on. Come on. Doesn't it make sense? Some of you couldn't even tolerate being in a room with somebody cheering for the Vikings if you're a Green Bay Packer fan. And you can tolerate as a roommate, and as a wife, and as a husband, and as a son, someone who's defying the living God. Now, mind you, I'm not saying a child who is being obedient and who does not yet know God. There's a difference between defiance and being in a position of seeking God. But I am saying this. Cornelius was a God-fearer, and it is no surprise that his household also feared God. All right? And that's a combination of what God did, and it's a combination of what Cornelius did. And that's always the way it is. God chooses to use us to accomplish His purposes. And so, if you say to your son, you're leaving my home because you don't serve God, and you think that will bring him to God, you're an idiot. That won't bring him to God. Only the Holy Spirit will. But God might be 
pleased to use that act of discipline to accomplish His purpose. And guess what? <laughs> Here I is. <laughs> God did do that with me. This man, Cornelius, is a wonderful model to us. It says that he gave generously to Jewish people who were in need, and it says also that he was a man of prayer. And I'm out of time. But I want to ask you this morning, I want to ask you, I was talking to uh, David Carell this last week about something having to do with being fathers, you know. (laughs) And David was saying, uh, we were in a conversation with a couple, and I was talking to the couple about how to handle discipline, and David was very quiet. And afterwards, I said to David, David, what did I say that was wrong, that you disapproved of, that you didn't like, because you were very quiet, and I want you to speak up and to tell me when I'm doing something wrong, when I'm, when I'm proud. What, whatever it was that set your teeth on edge, tell me, help, help, help. And David said, no. He said, I was just sitting there thinking of my failures as a father. And I can tell you that as you get older, you'll lie in bed with most of your children gone and all you'll be able to think at night is washing over you like a wave will be your failures. And I'm telling you that now, Jiho. And you're in the first blush of fatherhood. (laughs) And you think you'll learn from me, and then you'll get older. Gene Taylor, God bless him this week before his surgery. We were talking, I was talking to him. And Gene said to me, he said, Tim, the older I get, the more I learn I have to repent of. And Gene's a godly man. And then he said, and the more I learn that it's only the Holy Spirit that makes me able to repent. So if after the sermon this morning you think you're a failure, you're right. And I would like to give you a hug afterwards so that you will meet another failure. And every man in here is a failure. But God is merciful. And the life of a Christian is a life of ever new beginnings. So I call you as dads whether you've seen your child yet or not, whether your children are in the home or out, I call you to follow God. Have devotions yourself with your family. Be faithful in church. Be faithful with your money. Don't worship your money. What a, what a, what a, what a, what a completely hopeless thing to worship. Fear God. Don't have a cheap theology that allows you to escape the fear of God. Love God. Love God more than you want the friendship of your children. Discipline your children in faith, knowing that God may be pleased to use that discipline as the work to bring your child back to Him. Remember that the father of the prodigal son let him go. He gave him his inheritance and he let him go. And then God gave him back. Let's pray.